We present the unbelievable truth, the panel game built on truth and lies. In the chair, please welcome David Mitchell. Hello and welcome to The Unbelievable Truth, the panel show about incredible truths and barely credible lies. I'm David Mitchell. On the panel this week, it's Graham Garden, John Finnamore, Lou Sanders and Henning Vane. The rules are as follows. Each panellist will present a short lecture that should be entirely false, save for five hidden truths which their opponents should try to identify. Points are scored by truths that go unnoticed, while other panellists can win points if they spot a truth or lose points if they mistake a lie for a truth. First up is John Finnamore. John, your subject is The Rolling Stones, an English rock band formed in London in the 1960s whose first lineup included Mick Jagger on vocals, Keith Richards and Brian Jones on guitar, Bill Wyman on bass and Charlie Watts on drums. Off you go, John. Fingers on buzzers the rest of you. The Rolling Stones, a.k.a. the Naughty Beatles, <laughs> are the most high-profile victims of this government's fit-for-work assessment policy. <laughs> They have a combined age of 317 and are all forbidden from approaching a custom sniffer dog in case the sheer excitement kills it. 90% of the Rolling Stones' revenue is derived from song licensing. Organisations that they have permitted to use their tracks include the AA, Stop Breaking Down, Yeats's Wine Lodge, Street Fighting Man, and Gordon's Gin, Mother's Little Helper. Penny. I don't know their revenue streams inside out, so 90% seems a bit steep. Yes, I, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving the only question, why did you buzz? <laughs> because I just wanted to think about it, and so if John just rattles on, I haven't got no time it's to a, think it's about it properly. It's a, tr a trademark of yours on this show, if I may. So, the buzz so you can think. Yeah. <laughs> no, 90% of their revenues is not from song licensing. They earn much more by touring. John. The Stones also wrote the music for a Kellogg's Rice Krispies advert. Graham. I think they wrote a tune for Kellogg's. They did write mm. a tune for Kellogg's. Well done. In 1964, the Rolling Stones provided music for a Kellogg's Rice Krispies advert. Brian Jones wrote the music to these lyrics. Wake up in the morning, there's a snap around the place. Wake up in the morning, there's a crackle in your face. <laughs> Wake up in the morning, there's a pop that really says... Rice Krispies for you and you and you. <laughs> and if I may say so, you perform that with far more vigour than I'm sure they ever did. <laughs> <laughs> the children's choir at the beginning of You Can't Always Get What You Want included Emily Thornberry, Adrian Edmondson, Viggo Mortensen and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Henny. That might cost me a point, but uh, <laughs> Adrian Edmondson, was he in the choir? He wasn't. It wasn't Desmond Tutu, was it? <laughs> Do you want to buzz? No, that would be just foolish, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm not oh, saying. yeah, go on, then. <laughs> no, Desmond Tutu was not part of that choir. <laughs> <laughs> Lou? The other one. Which one? Yeah, number two. Number two was Adrian Edmonds. Oh, uh, the other one, then. The other one, another buzz. <laughs> Viggo Mortensen, no. No! <laughs> <laughs> Absolute... If you're going to literally, but for every one of these unlikely people, John's wishing he'd put a list of 19. <laughs> Mick Jagger has 42 children, three of whom are older than he is. <laughs> so Mick's hobbies include ballet dancing and midnight rambling, and he is an avid watcher of Countdown, 
often calling the show's producers if he spots a word he thinks they missed. Lou. Uh, the, I think he's a fan of ballet. He is a fan. He is a fan of ballet. Who isn't? Um, yeah, but we all like ballet. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> well, people hopping about. <laughs> I think he means women yeah. in leotards. Yeah. <laughs> and now on Radio 3, Tchaikovsky's People Hopping About. Yeah. Um, yes, ballet is part of Sir Mick's training regime. In an interview with Q magazine, he says ballet helps his balance and maintains his 28-inch waist. Keith Richards once did a corporate gig for the president of Turkmenistan, who mistakenly believed he had booked Sir Cliff Richard. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what happened. He rocked up there and then they realised they had the wrong man. No. <laughs> uh, though when Cliff Richards' home was raided, Sky News Australia mistakenly reported that Keith <laughs> Richards' home had been raided. It's Cliff Richard, Keith yeah. Richards, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a genitive. Yeah. Genitive? I was just confirming their different surnames. I wasn't trying to put it in a different case. <laughs> uh, I've, never, I've never knowingly declined Cliff Richard. <laughs> well, it's Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard, Cliff Richard. Henning, you're Cliff. just saying Cliff Richard now. <laughs> but, but for a purpose. If you say it one more time, he'll appear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that constitutes a booking. <laughs> Keith Richards once left his infant son Marlon in a hotel by accident and didn't notice for three years. The boy grew up feral in the corridor. His first words were room service and he believed his name was Sheraton because it was written on all his stuff. Keith's notorious tourine demands include a litre bottle of Conker vodka, a non-existent drink he invented in a dream, the bath to be filled with either Dom Perignon champagne or Bichon Frise puppies, but never both, <laughs> and a shepherd's pie. Henny. If it doesn't want to come across like a fruitcase, it has to be the shepherd's pie. It, the shepherd's pie is absolutely right, so, yeah. <laughs> And I, may I say, I, I like the expression, come across like a fruitcase. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Jones invented the famous tongue and lips logo after a gorilla stuck its tongue out at him in London Zoo. What he invented after visiting the baboons, history thankfully does not relate. <laughs> Great. I'm going to go with the uh, monkey sticking its tongue out at him. It's unfortunately not true. It was, in fact, designed by artist James... I don't know how you pronounce this. Pasha, P-A-S-C-H-E... Yeah. But so if you want to write in, I've, I've accepted, I can't say it. <laughs> there was a place in Norfolk I mispronounced. You'd, you'd literally think I was a Holocaust dinner. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that guy, he designed it because he was immediately struck by Jagger's mouth when he met him. <laughs> For which Jagger apologised, but, you know, yeah. when he turns around quickly... <laughs> <laughs> Bill Wyman was only asked to join the band because he owned an amplifier. Penny. Was he in the band because he's got an amplifier? Well done. That's mm. true. <laughs> yes, when, when Bill Wyman first went to rehearse with the Rolling Stones in 1962, he took with him a spare amp and a big bass cabinet. Reportedly, it was the spare amp that was the big draw, and they liked the, quote, more powerful, more electric sound that he and his equipment brought to the band. John. Charlie Watts is a passionate amateur lepidopterist and has over 600 specimens of butterflies, although no moths. 
because as he always angrily insists, a rolling stone gathers no moths. <laughs> Thank you, John. And at the end of that round, John, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that Keith Richards' son's first words were room service. <laughs> Growing up on tour with his drug addict parents, Keith's son is said to have learnt to count by pushing buttons in hotel elevators, and his first words were reportedly room service. And that means, John, you've scored one point. The stage show for the Stones' 1975 tour of America included a giant inflatable penis. In Memphis, police warned the band would be prosecuted if the penis was inflated. It was a charge that lawyers for the Stones took very seriously, as it was very likely to stand up in court. <laughs> Next up is Henning Vane. Henning is from Germany and is currently one of the most famous German comedians working in the UK. <laughs> Certainly in the top 20. <laughs> Henning, your subject is vegetarianism the practice of not eating meat or fish, whose variants include veganism, which excludes all animal products, including eggs and dairy. Off you go, Henning. Vegetarians were invented... <laughs> ..by Satan. <laughs> ..who wanted to create awkwardness and extra cooking for everyone giving a dinner party. <laughs> In Russia, vegetarianism didn't even exist after the revolution, when the Bolsheviks removed the word vegetarian from dictionaries. John. I don't know why they would have done, but did they remove it from the dictionary? They did. For decades after the Bolshevik Revolution, vegetarianism in Russia was essentially banned. Leaders of vegetarian societies were persecuted and sometimes arrested, and the word vegetarian was removed from Russian dictionaries. Vegetarianism mostly means a person doesn't eat an animal's flesh but we'll eat a cocktail made of its eggs, milk, honey, dreams, souls, unborn children, its Christmas spirit, its gym membership, and general sense of purpose, <laughs> providing there's enough ketchup. <clears throat> so, yeah, every meat eater thinks vegetarians are political correct numpties with too much time on their hands, whilst every vegan thinks all vegetarians are cold-hearted proxy murderers <laughs> who haven't quite thought it through. <laughs> To be properly thoughtful, you need to be vegan. Vegans have higher IQs than other people. If you don't believe me, just look at vegan intellectual heavyweight Mike Tyson. <laughs> Tyson hasn't touched meat since that ear incident. <laughs> huh? Although he has found a soy-based ear substitute. <laughs> Ironically, some of the most famous vegetarians include Ian Beefy Botham, <laughs> Kevin Bacon, John Hamm and Meatloaf. <laughs> In the song, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. That refers to eating a bacon sandwich. <laughs> Graham. I have a feeling Ian Botham is vegetarian. No. No? He's, uh, he gives pheasants to the poor from his estate. <laughs> Says here. Fair enough, that is the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, well, I suppose well, maybe he... that's because he doesn't eat them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think, I think he also does eat them. But All yes, right. no, that could be. Does he call he... that program <laughs> Pheasants for Peasants? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, time to bring him up, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus was the first vegetarian, but he soon lapsed, doling out 50,000 fish to the starving. To make matters... <laughs> I think Jesus was vegetarian. Uh, he ate yeah. fish. Oh, sh yeah, but he... you said he was the first vegetarian, but then he lapsed. 
Okay. I think Jesus wasn't the first vegetarian. Well, I'm regressing what I said. He also now. wasn't vegetarian. <laughs> okay. I suppose you could say he was vegetarian before he'd eaten anything. <laughs> you know, when he just had milk. He wasn't yeah. vegan. Yeah, thank you. Yes, but I suppose we all are then yeah. lapsed vegetarians. Yeah. But we just lapsed as soon as we were onto solids. Are you uh, saying that vegans aren't allowed to drink their mother's milk? I think vegans are allowed to have veal. <laughs> <laughs> They're making their own rules. <laughs> Early in the 20th century, English schoolmasters recommended that students become vegetarians in order to curb their appetite for self-abuse. However, they quickly relented when several news agents went out of business. <laughs> Donald Trump has banned vegetarians from America in case some of them are vegan and establish their own state in San Francisco. <laughs> Is there any place more resistant to a healthy diet than America? Well, the Yorkshire village of Fryup turned down a request from Peter to change its name to Vegan Fryup. In disgust, Peter built a village of tofu next door. <laughs> and that's all there is to be said about the difficult topic of vegetarianism. And if this only saves one egg, it's all been worth it. <laughs> Thank you, Henning. <laughs> and at the end of that round, Henning, you've managed to smuggle four truths Whoa. past the rest of the panel. Oh, that's very unlike me, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The four truths are that vegans have higher IQs than other people. In tests carried out in 1970, men who are vegetarian or vegan had an average IQ score of 106 compared with 101 for non-vegetarians, while female vegetarians or vegans averaged 104 compared with 99 for non-vegetarians. The second truth is that Meatloaf was a vegetarian <laughs> from 1981 to 1992 before he went back to eating meat. The third truth is that early in the 20th century, English schoolmasters recommended that students become vegetarians in order to curb their appetite for self-abuse. The fourth truth is that the Yorkshire village of Fryup turned down a request from People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, to change its name to Vegan Fryup to celebrate World Vegan Day on November the 1st. But they said no. And that means, Henning, you've scored four points. When filming The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio put aside his vegetarianism and insisted on eating bison liver as he was concerned a fake one made out of jelly wouldn't look real enough. Though for some reason, when it came to being attacked by a CGI bear, he said, I'm sure it'll look fine. <laughs> Next up is Lou Sanders. Lou, your subject is eggs. Oval or round objects laid by domestic poultry and other birds, reptiles, amphibians and fish consisting of a yolk, usually surrounded by albumen or egg white, and enclosed in a shell or strong membrane. Off you go, Lou. Ladies, if you don't like pigeons, think again, because gentlemen pigeons are real romantics, and they coo their lady love songs before going down on one knee to propose, except for the one-legged ones. And Mama Pidgey and Papa Pidgey take it in turns to sit atop of the egg. And there's a message there, which I suppose is, pigeons ain't so bad after all. But who does the washing up? <laughs> Henning. Do they alternate and we're sitting on their megs? Yes, that's true. Pigeons mate for life and share parenting duties. The father sits on the eggs during the day, which frees the mother to go and eat cigarette butts in a gutter. <laughs> <laughs> in China, they pay very good Chinese money for virgin boys' eggs. What, please? OK, the hen's eggs are cooked in little lad's piss and they're very popular. <laughs> John. I mean, that is a really weird lie. 
if it's a lie. So I can only think it's the truth. The Chinese virgin boy eggs. Yeah. Yes, that is true. Oh, thank God for that. (laughs) Yes, in the Chinese city of Dongyang, they enjoy a delicacy called virgin boy eggs, which involves cooking hen's eggs in urine collected from the toilets of boys-only primary schools. Yummy! After boiling, the eggshells are cracked and the eggs are placed back into fresh urine and the process is repeated. The entire cooking process generally takes a day. Locals claim that the eggs prevent heat stroke. I wonder who first discovered that. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a touch of heat stroke. I wonder if um, this is worth a try. (laughs) No, I'm saying they're all non-judgmental, but they're a bit mental, aren't they? (laughs) The causes of World War III were unexpected. (laughs) It's like, oh, we have to appease them now. We have to nuke them, really. (laughs) Well, if you're laughing, in America, they would make me president. (laughs) I, you know, I know I'm a horrendous centrist, but I sort of think there's, there may be a third way between <laughs> nuking and saying everything's fine, which is moaning. <laughs> Fake chicken eggs are also a problem in China. A woman named Mei Din is said to be behind it. I think her name's Mei Din, but I can't really read Chinese writing. Rabbits, given alcohol, lay half as many eggs because it makes them less fertile, which is weird because all the times I got pregnant, alcohols very much played a part. <laughs> a 61-year-old woman gave birth to her own grandson when her baby was conceived with an egg donated by her daughter. Happy Mother's Day! Henning. I have to think this through. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is nothing that would stop that from happening, so, yeah, I reckon that's true. No, hang on, how would that all work? Uh, Have I got time to put on a song? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's exactly what happened. It is exactly what happened, (laughs) yes. Yes, in 2011, a 61-year-old woman named Christine Casey gave birth to her own grandson when her baby was conceived with an egg donated by her 35-year-old daughter, Sarah Connell, who had been trying for years to have a baby. In the early 1970s, the UK's egg marketing board was concerned that the term egg whites might sound racist. So instead of actually tackling racism, they spent £2 million on trying to rebrand egg whites as egg see-through bits. (laughs) The idea for the Beatles song yesterday came to Paul McCartney when he fell asleep in his breakfast and was originally titled Scrambled Eggs. John. You can sing Scrambled Eggs to yesterday, and for that reason I buzzed. (laughs) Well, you're absolutely right. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yes, the song Yesterday came to Paul McCartney in his sleep. He explained in 1980, I woke up with a lovely tune in my head. Keen not to forget his magical dream melody, McCartney wrote some temporary lyrics for the song about scrambled eggs and named it after the breakfast dish. The song began, Scrambled eggs, oh my baby, how I love your legs. No, 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 I think everybody in the audience wants to hear you sing it. <laughs> Well, you know, people don't always get what they want. (laughs) Did you just do a music reference joke? Uh, By accident. I I realised it at the same time you did. And I thought, can I remember the next line and pretend that was deliberate? And I thought, no, I can't. (laughs) Lastly, the Looney Tunes catchphrase was originally, that's all yokes. That's how loony it was. (laughs) Thank you, Lou. At the end of that round, Lou, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel, which is that fake chicken eggs are a problem in China. 
Fake chicken eggs first appeared in the mid-90s and production spread all over China. The fake eggs are made from a mixture of resin, coagulant and starch, complete with pigment for colour as well as a counterfeit shell. One person can make approximately 1,500 of them per day. And that means, Lou, you've scored one point. Thank you. <laughs> As it lays eggs and produces milk, the duck-billed platypus is one of the only mammals that could potentially make its own custard. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that's real custard we're talking about. Powdered custard is, of course, made by birds. <laughs> Next up is Graham Garden. Graham, your subject is Harry Potter, a series of fantasy novels plus accompanying film franchise written by J.K. Rowling about a young wizard and his friends who are students at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Off you go, Graham. J.K. Rowling wrote the original Harry Potter book in ancient Greek. In fact, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is the longest published work in ancient Greek since the 3rd century AD. John. Well, I've seen a Latin Winnie the Pooh. And therefore, I wonder whether someone's translated Harry Potter into Greek and it's the longest thing anyone's written in that language since people used it. You're right. Yes. Mm. Yes, when it was translated into ancient Greek, it became the longest work in the language since the novels of Heliodorus of Emesa in the 3rd century AD. I had a friend who um, read the Harry Potter books in French to improve his French, uh, and he said it was hard to concentrate because the French for wand is baguette. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of Harry Potter getting out his magic baguettes and giving, <laughs> giving it a wave. <laughs> so they call those loaves of bread wands? Yes. They're, they're not very after... good wands, are they? More like clubs. <laughs> In the French version of Harry Potter, the word baguette... Is... <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter was actually Rowling's 50th book. She had failed to find a publisher for the 49 books she'd written in her Shades of Grey series. <laughs> so she gave up and turned to Hogwarts. Stephen Fry made broadcasting history when Radio 4 aired nine solid hours of him reading Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Disappointed listeners said it would have been better if Stephen had read it out loud. <laughs> Two-thirds of this programme is a recording of Henning Vane thinking. <laughs> <laughs> White witches and Wiccan pressure groups in the USA complained that the Harry Potter stories gave away too many of their occult secrets. And as a result, those titles were the most banned books of the decade in the United States, closely followed by Arthur Ransom's Swallows and Amazons and Baden-Powell's Scouting for Boys. John. Were they the most banned books in the States? They were, yes. Some of the most censored books on record in US schools and libraries are the Harry Potter series. The books have chiefly faced calls for censorship from Christian religious leaders who disapprove of the magical world and have condemned the books as satanic. Some Pentecostal churches have publicly burnt the books. I mean, the Americans, they aren't all there, are they? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon we should nuke them. <laughs> Thank you very... You're respecting the BBC's commitment to balance. <laughs> it took a five-year search to find the right actor to play Harry Potter on screen. Little did anyone realise that the youngster's earnings from the final movie alone would total approximately £40. <laughs> In the year after the first Harry Potter movie came out, Hermione became the third most popular name for a girl. 
By far the most popular name for a boy that year was Dumbledore. <laughs> Incidentally, Dumbledore is the old English word for cat flap. <laughs> the toy firm Mattel produced a vibrating replica of Harry's broomstick. <laughs> However, mums complained their teenage daughters spent too long riding it, so it had to be withdrawn. <laughs> Lou. I'm getting into the mind of Graham, right? <laughs> I'm thinking he's not going to make something like that up. Well, on this occasion, <laughs> you're right. Yeah! <laughs> yes, the, the toy firm Mattel axed a vibrating replica of Harry's Nimbus 2000 broomstick. <laughs> the battery-operated toy was advertised as having, quote, a grooved stick and handle for easy riding. <laughs> One mum in New Jersey said her 12-year-old daughter played with the broomstick for hours. She said she likes its special effects. <laughs> so does her 17-year-old sister. An eagle-eyed student at Durham University, where you can take a module in Harry Potter studies, spotted a picture of Gandalf the Grey on Dumbledore's Wall of Wizards. Lou. I think you can do a module at Durham University in that thing. You no, can. don't let that be true. Don't it is true. <laughs> Around 70 undergraduates signed up to the module Harry Potter and the Age of Illusion when it was offered as part of the university's Education Studies BA degree. The module required undergraduates to set the series, quote, in its social, cultural and educational context and understand some of the reasons for its popularity. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> the Western world is gone completely nuts, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Let's nuke ourselves. <laughs> J.K. Rowling was so nervous at the premiere of the first Harry Potter film that, for moral support, she took her sister, Mary Lee Rowling, along. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Graham. And at the end of that round, Graham, you've managed to smuggle one truth past the rest of the panel. This is that the baby in the last Harry Potter film, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, was paid £40 for his role, which wouldn't have covered the price of two tickets to see the film in IMAX 3D cinemas. <laughs> Little Toby Papworth appears on camera four times, features in worldwide trailers for the film that has grossed over $1 billion at the box office, and his name is in the credits. Toby's mum, Ashley, said, It seems a bit mean. That said, we had a great day. <laughs> uh, and that means, Graham, you've scored one point. Yeah. Which brings us to the final scores. In joint third place, with minus two points each, it's Lou Sanders and Graham Garden. <laughs> In second place, with three points, it's Henning Vane. And in first place, with an unassailable six points, is this week's winner, John Finnamore. <laughs> That's about it for this week. Goodbye. The Unbelievable Truth was devised by John Naismith and Graham Garden and featured David Mitchell in the chair with panellists John Finnamore, Graham Garden, Lou Sanders and Henning Vane. The chairman's script was written by Dan Gaster and Colin Swash, and the producer was Richard Turner. It was a random production for BBC Radio 4.